C. Truman Davis, a medical doctor, provides a physical description of Roman crucifixion. A cross is placed in the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards and his shoulders placed against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression in the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex in movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. I pause for one moment and add one more thing. There, the Romans oftentimes would put a, a round peg right between the prisoner's legs so that when they would push up, they would be free from the, from the uh, inability to breathe, but when they would not be able to push up, there was excruciating pain in the groin area as well of a typical Roman crucifixion. I return to Dr. Davis's report now. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain along the fingers shoots up to the arms and explodes into the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through his nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless cycles of pain, twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down, the rough timber passed by. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's almost over now. The loss of fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in even small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through the tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. All of this, the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. The brutal scourgings that our Lord endured put him in a position of extreme physical weakness. And that ought not to be missed. 
before Jesus ever gets to the cross, he is totally spent. There's nothing left in him physically. So by the time he gets to the last three hours on the cross, he has no physical resources to call upon, no physical resources at all to call upon. This is a spiritual battle, and it's, and it's an intimate moment between father and son because of you and because of me. But we need to recognize everything that preceded this crucifixion took away any physical ability he might have to put his shoulder to the wind and to resist this. We might think about this next time we have a headache and are rude to someone. Say, oh, well, I, I'm sorry, I just had a headache. Well, Christ had a whole lot more than a headache, and he went through with his mission. Incredibly. The procession made its way through the streets of Jerusalem from the fortress of Antonia to the place of execution, the place of the skull, which was a hill or a knoll outside of the city of Jerusalem, which was ready to, readily visible to all who entered and exited the city, and many followed along at that point. Some people wonder where we get the idea that there was a hill or a knoll. There is no hill there now. It's all been leveled off. But as early as the 4th century A.D., church tradition says, indeed, that there was a hill. That, that The tradition that there was a hill goes as far back as the traditional crucifixion site. So it would actually be inconsistent for someone to say, this is the site that Jesus was crucified, but he absolutely was not crucified on a hill. It would, you're using the same data the distance from the fortress of Antonia to the place where Jesus was crucified was about 400 yards, at least as the crow flies. Since they were weaving their way through the city, or through some of the streets of the city, along the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, it probably took a little bit longer than it would have, of course, just to walk 400 yards, but it was a slow procession. It was customary for the Romans to require the prisoner, the condemned prisoner, to carry his own cross. This was a further form of humiliation. They couldn't be bothered to carry that cross. The condemned man had to do it. Historical research shows that typically in a Roman crucifixion, the condemned prisoner would not carry the whole cross, but would only carry the crossbar where his arms would be crucified. That would have been heavy enough. It would have been next to impossible for any Roman prisoner to carry the weight of a full cross. It just simply would have been too much, even under good circumstances, much less after they had been scourged. The prisoner would then be laid upon the longer part of the cross, which would be waiting for them at the point of execution. There's no reason to think that Jesus' crucifixion was any different from other Roman crucifixions. You know that the weight of the cross was too much for Jesus, and he stumbles under the weight. And Roman soldiers compelled a man who was visiting Jerusalem at that time, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross the remainder of the distance to the hill of the skull. Two others were also crucified with Jesus that day and were also part of this procession. Once they arrived at the place of execution, which was outside the city wall, at a crossroads of sorts, a place where many people would be coming and going throughout the day, Jesus was offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh. Matthew records that he tastes this drink and then refuses the rest of it. It's traditionally understood that this was a drink to dull the senses. And it's taken from the Jewish custom that's mentioned in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 
6 and 7. Those verses read this way. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more. It was a Jewish custom to give a condemned person a little bit of something to perhaps numb the pain. The problem with that is, is that myrrh doesn't have any pain-killing properties. In addition, it's a Jewish custom. At this point, the Jews aren't in charge of any of this. The Romans are in charge. And it's much more likely that the Romans offered him this, not in any show of compassion whatsoever, but as another form of humiliation and mockery. It would have been a very bitter drink. Myrrh makes things quite bitter. They're pretending to be kind. And at the same time, they're mocking him all the way to the end. It's 9 o'clock in the morning now. And Jesus is crucified between these two criminals. As the Lord of the universe hangs between heaven and earth on a cross made of wood that he created, the Roman soldiers gamble for his outer garment. The Romans ordinarily crucified their prisoners naked. Christian tradition has it that since Jesus' mother Mary was present, that the Romans made an exception and allowed Jesus to retain a loincloth. I'm not at all sure of that. That certainly doesn't sound consistent with their attitude toward our Lord up to this point. They had been mocking him. They're the ones that gave him the crown of thorns. They had beaten him severely. It's doubtful. I wish I could say something different. But it's doubtful that they offered Jesus even this small aspect of dignity. The cross was a total humiliation. I think the reason the Renaissance painters painted it differently was because we don't want to go there. We don't want to realize the incredible humiliation that he went through for us because we want to feel just a little bit better about ourselves. It's part of the human nature that we, we don't want to think that we really deserved everything that happened there. Yeah, maybe she does, and I know he does, but not me. No, we deserve every bit of that. So I have no reason to give you any, any comfort at all that Jesus was crucified in any way other than the normal Roman crucifixion. I wish I could. Believe me, I wish I could. But I can't. Pilate ordered an inscription placed at the top of Jesus' cross that read in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. The Jews would protest this to Pilate, but Pilate refused to change it. I think at this point he had had enough of that Jewish leadership. They had already pressured him into crucifying a man that he knew was innocent. He had had enough of it. It's at this point that Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 32, tell this part of the story. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Hey, aha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, let this Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. 
He saved others, but he can't save himself. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insults at him. The first saying of Jesus on the cross is recorded by Luke. As the soldiers gambled for his garments, Luke records these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Under Roman custom, four soldiers under the leadership of a single centurion were assigned to each of the individuals being crucified. At least, typically they were. There was a time outside of Rome that that 5,000 slaves were crucified on one day, 5,000. There wouldn't have been enough centurions to go around there. But in this case, only having three prisoners being crucified, surely the typical Roman custom was followed. So there's one centurion, four soldiers per individual. Four soldiers crucified Jesus under the leadership of one centurion. While the immediate contrast is between Jesus' concern for his executioners and their complete disrespect of him, the scope of Jesus' prayer that's recorded in Luke reaches to all who had a hand in securing Jesus' present position on the cross. What an incredible attitude. We've already talked last week about the incredible brutality that was perpetrated upon Jesus before he ever gets to this point. And the first thing out of his mouth once he's crucified, once there are nails that have been, that have been thrust through his hands and his feet, the first thing out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said, don't hate your enemies, love your enemies. Now Jesus is living that out. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's no threats, no defiant words, just forgiveness. Matthew records that both of the criminals that are crucified with Jesus hurled insults at him. But while the first of the criminals continued the verbal barrage, the second one had a change of heart. Luke chapter 23 records this, verses 39 through 43, the second saying on the cross to this man, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Second saying of Jesus. Now, he is responding to the second thief on the cross, or the second criminal on the cross, saying, listen, we need to leave him alone. We're up here justly. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. He's not asking Jesus to have fond memories of their time together. There's no fondness here. That's that's not what he's asking at all. He's asking Jesus that he might be in the kingdom with him. That's the way both the Jews and the Greeks use that term remember. Remember with some action. He's asking for salvation. Jesus sees in this man a speck of faith. Verses 40 through 41 of Luke 23, the man recognizes his need. Then verse 42, he exercises faith. And then in verse 43, Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't miss that. Since the late 1800s, there was been this discussion about soul sleep. What happens when we die? Most of us aren't concerned about it until we get to that point. Or someone we love is at that point. But Jesus said to this person, not at the resurrection... Not at the second coming, not at some time in the future, but today you'll be with me in paradise. 
The moment we take our last breath on this earth, we take our first breath of celestial air, it goes from one moment to the next. This verse and others would argue against the idea of soul sleep. It's not, a, it's not as popular now as it was perhaps 50 years ago, but sometimes you still hear it. No, there's not a state of unconsciousness for a while. We wouldn't know it if there was, but there's not a state of unconsciousness from one moment, moment to the next. He's going to be with Jesus. I want you to notice here, there's no water baptism. There's no joining a church for this fellow. There's no good works. There's no giving any money. There's no promising to be better in the future. None of that. Simple faith. That's all this man could do. Simple faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Sometime before noon, Jesus utters the third saying. Recorded in John chapter 19, verse 26. Woman, behold thy son, and then behold thy mother. Christ's care for his mother Mary is made clear on the cross. The more I study this, every season that comes and goes and I study the crucifixion even more deeply and more intensely, I must say I come to an, an even greater appreciation of Jesus' mother Mary. For a long time, Protestants have, I think, overreacted to Catholic theology, Roman Catholic theology, which worships Mary in a sense, which make, they make her the co-redeemer, a pray to Mary in some senses. And, and Protestants have rightly said, that's wrong, we shouldn't do that. Jesus was dying for Mary as well. But as Protestants, I'm afraid sometimes we take her off of that pedestal that she's been placed upon and then throw her right down into the dirt where she doesn't belong. Mary was a very special person. She was blessed among all women. That's pretty special. Who among you would not have wanted to have given birth to the Christ child? But if you think of what Mary had to go through, maybe you might have second thoughts. She had been told when Jesus is just an infant, when he's being circumcised, that, that, that your soul will be pierced. She thought about that for the 30, 33 years, 36 years that Jesus was alive, and now it's being pierced in a serious way that only a mother or perhaps a father could understand. Her soul is pierced here. At this point, Jesus is honoring his mother by providing for her care after he's gone. He has been his mother's caretaker, at least up until the point of time when he leaves for his public ministry. And it looks very much like Mary's along the way in several places. But now he's leaving. And so he turns the care of his mother over to the Apostle John. Interesting, because Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, later, at least two of his brothers are saved, James and Jude, who are his half-brothers. But he doesn't turn the care of his mother over to them. He's the oldest brother. He's in charge. And he turns the care of his mother over to someone he knows at that point is a believer in him. The Greek term for woman there, he says, woman, behold thy son. The Greek term for woman is gune. gune. It's not as disrespectful as it might sound. If I would have called my mother woman, even to this day, she probably would would take a stick out and hit me over the head with it, and so would yours. So don't try it. Don't try it with your wife either. <laughs> Might not work. Because we would almost view that as a sign of disrespect. But not in their day. This was what an adult son would respectfully call his mother at that point. It was the normal form of address from an older son to a mother. John mentions that there were four women present at the cross, and they stand in stark contrast to the soldiers that are present. 
again, under the typical Roman custom, women were not prohibited from witnessing the crucifixion of their loved ones. Now, they couldn't get right up next to the cross for security reasons, but they sure could be within voice range. And if you realize that at this point, Jesus is already physically spent, his voice could not have been too strong, at least not right here. So I'm assuming that Mary and John and the three other women are at least within five to ten feet of Jesus at this point. John may or may not. He may have had to stay back a little bit because the Roman soldiers would not have let a man get too close for fear that there would be some rebellion or some, some action against the soldiers. But Mary was certainly very, very close. And what must have been going through her mind? as she sees the son that she nursed and the son that she took care of as a babe and as a child being brutalized by these godless men. What must have gone through her mind? And again, I don't want to place her in the position of co-redeemer. That's blasphemy. Jesus is the only one paying the penalty for sin here. But we need to recognize the pain that this woman felt that was unlike the pain of anybody else there. I'm sorry. Also present at the cross were Mary's sister. Mary's sister was, according to New Testament scholars, also the mother of James and John, which makes James and John first cousins of Jesus. There was also a Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, were present. So in the first three hours that Jesus is up on the cross, from 9 a.m. to 12, He says three things. Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother. In these three statements, our Lord first expresses his grace. Oh, what grace? Father, forgive them. Second, he demonstrates that no one is too evil to get to heaven, provided they exercise faith in the right object, that being him. And third, he sees to the continuing care of his mother. At 12 noon, Luke chapter 23, verse 44, says that darkness fell over the whole land from that time until approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 seems to say that it's the entirety of our Lord's suffering that in some way is involved with paying the penalty of sin. There are no other verses that I know of that stress that. I would say most conservative systematic theologians recognize that the real work of salvation actually starts now at 12 o'clock. All the things we've talked about, all the humiliation, the crown of thorns, the nails through his hands and his feet, the mocking, the scourgings, all that is preparatory. And at 12 noon, darkness covers the earth. Because again, this is a very personal time between father and son. It's now that the sins of the world, yours, mine, and everybody else's, yours, mine, personally, and everybody else's are going to be imputed to him poured out upon him, and the wrath of God is going to judge those sins in him instead of me. And there's darkness 
over the earth. Because this is something that I think the Father says, you don't get to see this. There'll be no Polaroids. No cameras here. No videos running. It's not going to show on CNN or Fox. This is between me and my son, and you don't get to see it. You're going to get to hear it. You're going to hear something of it, but you're not going to get to see it. Sometime after the earth becomes dark, I don't know how long, I suspect not very long, a scream pierces the darkness. Up until now, I think he's been speaking in a lower lower voice. But now the text tells us he roared, he screamed, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The way the Greek text reads, it's very probable that Jesus said this repeatedly over and over again for a three-hour period. The question, of course, is rhetorical. He knew why he was being forsaken. He was being forsaken because he who knew no sin was being made sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's fascinating to me that the scriptures never record that Jesus screamed during the scourgings. He may have. But that's not the emphasis of the scripture. What God the Holy Spirit wanted you to know and wanted me to know was the thing that caused him to scream was me. He screamed for me and he screamed for you. He was forsaken by the Father because he loved you and that's the only way it was going to get done. Here Jesus enters what theologians call spiritual death. It's a separation from God in some ineffable way, in some totally understandable, totally unexplainable way to you and to me. But in some ineffable way, Jesus is separated from his Father as the sinner's substitute. His physical death will follow shortly after this spiritual death. But don't forget he dies spiritually first. Some of those who are still hanging around among the priesthood, here's Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, and Matthew it says, Eli, Eli, it's slightly different. They think he's calling for Elijah. They think he's finally wised up and calling for some help, but that's not the case. After a period of three hours of this, Three hours of the most intense agony, agony that I can't describe to you. I'm not going to try. There are no words in the English language to do it or any other language. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? I don't have the language. God didn't give it to us. Maybe in heaven, perhaps in heaven, We'll sit down and have some sort of time with the sun or maybe some special seminar of some sort where we get to go through in small numbers where he says, this is what it was really like. I doubt even then we'll be able to comprehend it. Perhaps. Then in John chapter 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I am thirsty. This is an apparent reference to Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. 
Jesus had been on the cross for approximately six hours by this time. He had endured a brutal beating beforehand. His body was severely dehydrated. After he says, I thirst, someone nearby, an unidentified person nearby, lifts a sponge that is full of GI wine or wine mixed with vinegar to his lips and wet his mouth. This is not the same drink that he refused before. That was wine mixed with myrrh. This is the wine that the soldiers would have been drinking for the hours that they stayed there by, the six hours they were there too. This is the wine that they would have been drinking. And so someone finally had just a bit of compassion. I think it's providential compassion because Jesus is going to say something next that is going to echo throughout eternity and everybody there needed to hear it. So some person wets his lips not to resolve the dehydration problem because it wouldn't, but to allow him to say the next phrase. Once his lips are moistened, Jesus says what is perhaps the most significant of all the phrases on the cross, to tell estai, properly pronounced, to tell estai. It is finished. Hence the title of the series that we've been doing this month. It is finished. It's the perfect tense, which most Greek grammarians recognize, covers an action that has taken place in the, in the past, a finished action in the past, that has results that continue on into the future. It is finished. The mission had been accomplished. Jesus had completed the work that his father had sent him to do. In a broader theological context, the work of salvation is over, it's finished, it's completed. There is nothing that could ever be added to what Jesus did. Do you see why God has no sympathies for people that say, yeah, I'll trust Christ and I'm going to be good. Stuff your goodness in a sack. It's filthy rags before God. The goodness that he accepts is his son's goodness up on the cross. It is blasphemy to say, I'm going to be good enough to get to heaven. We can't do it. This is what it took to get us to heaven. We either recognize that or we refuse it. Recognize it and you'll spend eternity with God. Accept that. Trust in him. You'll spend eternity with God. Try to do it on your own and you're never going to get there. The beauty of it is God has provided this for everyone. He died for every one of us. There were, there's nobody excluded in what he did on the cross. This is the second time Jesus has said it is finished. Maybe you might recall back if, in previous studies of John chapter 17, verse 4, as Jesus says there that I have finished the work that you've sent me to do. Interesting, because he's still alive. He hadn't been to the cross yet. That was a reference to the task that Jesus had been given of revealing the Father to mankind. And that Part of the task was finished in the upper room. Now the paying the penalty of sin was finished. The payment made to satisfy the Father was for all sins committed by all men. No exceptions. No sin was left out. Not Moses' anger or David's adultery or Paul's persecution of Christians. No, all sins. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross renders all men savable. 
He didn't leave anybody's sins out. So it renders all men savable. Christ paid the penalty for everyone. But that penalty, the payment of that penalty, has not been applied to everyone. If it was, everyone would be saved because he paid the penalty for all sins, including sometimes people say, well, the sin of unbelief. He would have even paid the penalty for that. He paid the penalty for all sins. Application of that benefit to the individual awaits the moment of faith. It's there. It's a gift. It's being offered to you. It's been paid for in full. But it remains unbeneficial to you unless you accept it, unless you receive it. Until then, you're made dead, according to the Apostle Paul, in your trespasses and sins. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Even though Christ paid for them, you're still dead in them if you don't accept the work that he did for you. For the life of me, I can't figure out why you wouldn't. Luke 23, verse 46, reports the final words of Jesus on the cross that were a quotation of the first half of Psalm 31, verse 5. He doesn't quote the whole verse, just the first part. Father, into your hands I deposit my spirit. Jesus doesn't quote the last half of that verse because it doesn't apply to him. He only quoted what's recorded. Having accomplished everything that he had been sent to accomplish, Jesus exhales, and with his last breath he says these words. Apparently he does not inhale again. Christ died because of an act of his own will. And he dismissed his spirit from his body. He was in control the whole time. I hope you realize, even up until that last moment, he could have still ended it and come down off that cross and saved himself. But he didn't. His work was completed. And he died by an act of his own will. For the Christian, the remembrance of this event should cause the most profound humility to flood our soul and it should serve to motivate us to serve him with an intensity like we've never served him before. Not to pay him back for what he's done. We can't do that. Never. Don't even try. The father would be insulted by that. But to demonstrate in a very small way the appreciation that we have for what he did for us. If you're here this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I invite you to do that right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works. Lest any man should boast. When compared to the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, who are we to try to offer anything? Anything whatsoever. We come to him with the empty hands of faith. The scriptures clearly reveal... That eternal life in the presence of God in heaven can be yours simply by placing your trust in the person of Jesus Christ who was crucified as a substitute for you and was risen again three days later. The creator of the universe knows exactly what you're thinking right now.
So tell him in the privacy of your own thoughts, in the privacy of your own soul. Nobody's going to be embarrassed this morning. I promise you, I'll never embarrass you. This is a private matter between you and God. And if you've never done this, this is the time to do it. Tell him that you know that there's no way you can earn your own salvation. Admit that to him. And then tell him you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ right now. And you know what? That's the moment you'll have eternal life, right then. And it can never be taken away from you. Now's the time. Not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not the next day, not when I get out of college, not when I retire, not when I get the kids off to school. None of those excuses that people say. Now's the time. Now. You perhaps are at the most significant crossroads that you have ever approached in your entire life. Maybe this is the only time you're going to approach this crossroads. I don't know. Right now, place your faith and your faith alone in Jesus Christ. Don't let this sacrifice that he made for you go unrealized in your life.